This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people saying, no thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. Alongside Guy Johnson, I'm Jonathan Farrow in the same place, 24 hours out from a big UK general election. And ahead of that election, the FTSE going absolutely nowhere at the close today. The pound with a big session, a gap lower at the start. And as the session grows older, the pound grows stronger. The pound, $1.31.76 as we approach the end of the day, Guy. Quite a day so far for pound sterling. Yeah, the polling and the reason for that drop overnight uh, was the fact that we saw this this poll, this um, this this big poll that everybody's been waiting to see, indicating that maybe this is much tighter than anticipated, and that Boris Johnson is going to struggle to get a majority that is above thirty. I, basically, he's had his lead cut in half, according to this poll, and as a result of which, the market is feeling a little bit nervous. But you and I talked about this a little earlier on. What we have seen uh, is the uh, is the pound gapping lower, but coming back, and I think it's that coming back uh, bit that I think is really interesting. Why has the pound come back? Uh, you continue to see risk reversals pushing lower, so the market is hedging the risk at the moment. But nevertheless, uh, you are seeing the pound continue to climb into the into this election. But if you take a look at the risk reversals. They've been pointing in exactly the opposite direction. This election is so hard to call, and perhaps harder to call than the last election as well, Guy. You've got two leaders from the Conservatives, from Labour, both of them not very popular with the general electorate. Then we have this situation in these marginal seats where we have constituencies that have been Labour strongholds but also voted to leave the EU. Then constituencies that have been Conservative strongholds historically but also voted to remain in the EU. And both of these parties trying to get these seats to swing towards them. That's why this particular election is just so hard to read, Guy. Yeah, and I think then you look at the outcome of this election as well that you've got to try and figure out. Kind of... It, it's it's what if Boris Johnson were to win, how does he win, and how does that change his ability to govern? I think is one of the bigger questions that people are trying to figure out. A big majority gives him a lot of flexibility. A big majority gives him the option of going to the EU and negotiating a a deal that is likely to be beneficial to the UK and that business is definitely looking for. However, you get a, a majority that's relatively small, he's going to have his hands tied, it's, we're going to be bogged down again in this kind of, um, in, in this trench warfare that we saw in Parliament uh, over the last few years. And, and that's going to make it very difficult, A, to invest in the UK, uh, and B, uh, to trade around the UK assets. I think it, it, uh, so, so you've got this kind of really difficult election, as you say, to call. It, it's coming down to a few key seats, but the effects of that is going to be magnified so massively over the next few months. Nightmare price action. It looks a little something like this. If we end up with a result where we have a situation that scares investors and yields on gilts go higher, the pound goes lower and FTSE futures roll over, that's the capital flight story. We haven't seen the capital flight story, as far as I can see, over the last three years, Guy. It was something some people feared. Going into the next 24 hours... Is there any kind of political outcome that you can think of that would generate the capital flight story that we would associate with EM risk 
Could you see that playing out in any way, shape, or form yeah, a in the United majority. Kingdom? A Corbyn, a Corbyn majority. majority. I think would a Corbyn, that that yeah. would cause the capital flight story in markets. I think it probably would. Yeah. Um, a, a hardcore leftist agenda coming into into force in the United Kingdom. However, you and I have uh, have been through a number of different elections in different parts of the world where you where you you think you're going to get a result. And it's going to lead to uh, an outcome when it comes to the financial markets. The Trump election is a classic case in point. You could argue that a Corbyn victory would generate a a different response that people are anticipating because you would probably get a second referendum. I struggle. I really do struggle with the idea that there's massive downside in cable if we get a hung parliament. I was talking to Jordan Rochester of Nomura to help me understand that a little bit better. Why is there so much downside on cable if we get a hung parliament? Because the way I was thinking about it, guys, essentially as follows. The move from 120 to 130 wasn't about a conservative majority. It wasn't about Prime Minister Boris Johnson. It was about stepping back from the cliff edge, pulling back from a hard Brexit. Yep. A hung parliament, does that take us closer back towards a hard Brexit again? Can you paint that scenario for I, me? I because just, I struggle to put that argument together. I think it just, it just, it's more, it's, it's, n- it's not producing the clarity that I think people are now hoping for and anticipating. We'll talk about this a little bit more in a little bit more detail in just a moment. Uh, we, we, what we haven't done thus far is got some headlines from Charlie Pellet. So, Charlie, Hi, over thank you. you very much. A lot going on today. Obviously, the UK election, trade, the ongoing issue as well, and of course, that Federal Reserve decision. We're less than two hours away from the Fed's final policy decision of the year. The Federal Reserve is widely expected to avoid signaling a further interest rate reduction, and uh, that uh, is on the immediate horizon when it delivers its verdict two o'clock Wall Street time. Investors remain on edge over whether tariffs will take hold December 15th. They're also getting little clarity from the White House, specifically advisor Peter Navarro, who said he has no indication that President Trump will do anything other than have a great deal or put tariffs on. Saudi Aramco shares surged after the oil producer's IPO, valuing the company at a record $1.88 trillion in the culmination of a four-year effort by the kingdom to list its crown jewel. Stock jumped the daily 10% limit when trading began today in Riyadh. Latest from the news desk back to you now in london charlie pellet thank you very much a stack show still ahead we'll get you up to speed on the markets a little bit later on the program pleased to say that just dropping by the studio bloomberg opinions Therese Raphael has just walked in so we're going to adjust the microphone and we're going to catch up with her right now Therese, it's great to see you thank you happy to be here 24 hours out from a big election just walk us through what you think is at stake through tomorrow right so we, the polls open at 7 a.m. in the morning. What we've seen with the uh, latest polls, a YouGov poll that came out last night, uh, uh, also a poll by Number Cruncher Politics, which we published just a short time ago, is that the gap has narrowed between uh, Boris Johnson's conservatives principally and the Labour Party. So a uh, YouGov poll that projected onto constituencies a couple of weeks ago showed a 58-seat Tory majority. Last night's poll uh, brought that down to about 28 seats. Now, you know, that is to be expected this close to a vote. Um, It normally does narrow. But um, what this seems to suggest is that while Boris Johnson may have maxed out in terms of the Brexit vote that he can squeeze um, uh, into his Conservative Party. Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn probably still has some gains that he could make off the Liberal Democrat vote that has been shrinking. So what kind of votes are we thinking about? What kind of seats? Are we thinking about the southeast, the Conservative remains, the northwest, right. the Labour leaves? What are the constituencies that you're focused on at the moment? Okay, so I'd say the the, the 
key focus right now is still the labor heartlands. There are about 50 seats uh, from the Midlands to the north, say 39 of those are leave voting seats. The conservatives are trying very hard to swing those. As Matt Singh points out in his Bloomberg Opinion column uh, this evening, a lot of the those seats have been, have been wavering for a while. This is not just a Brexit issue. They have been moving into, say, uh, away from the Labour camp. They've become more socially conservative. Uh, and so those are seats that are going to be all to play for. I also think... Um, we ought to look very closely at the seats that the Lib Dems have been targeting, the centrist Remain voting seats. A lot of voters there are uh, really wondering whether they want to to cast their vote for the Lib Dems. They don't have a chance of winning this election. Joe Swenson hasn't done very well on the campaign trail. Those could break either way. Theresa Raphael will be sticking with us through the show. We'll be catching up with her about the other constituencies. No surprise, Guy, that the Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn are campaigning, guess where today? Yorkshire in the Midlands. That seems to be the focus. It certainly does. We'll carry on the conversation. Uh, This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area and around the world on all of your Bloomberg devices. Cable currently trading 131.80. Remember, we've still got a euro sterling rate that is uh, below 85. Big lie in the sand uh, for the market. Let's talk about where this, uh, this election goes next and the implications for the British economy. Um, you start to think about kind of what next year could look like, John. We've got a... Assuming you get Brexit done, we then have effectively a year, a little less, to get a trade deal done with the EU. There is a crunch point, therefore, likely to come in the early summer in which we are likely to see a big debate around whether or not we're going to get an extension to that process. I'm just wondering whether investors are prepared at this point in time to make a decision on the UK without more clarity on what the ultimate trade deal is going to look like. Do you think, you talk to a lot of investors over in the United States, do they say this election is a pivotal moment or do they say we will wait, we will want to see what the UK's relationship is going to look like on a longer term? I think for the specialised investors, they they understand the nuance. For the individual investor from the outside just looking in, I don't think there's quite the appreciation of what is about to happen through 2020. They're about to go through this long phase of negotiations with the EU once again. And going to your point, this is why the size of the majority of the Conservative Party do indeed win one ultimately matters. That will make it easier or harder for the Prime Minister to negotiate a deal with the Europeans. And I'd go one step further. It's in the Conservative manifesto not to extend. So if they don't have a deal by the end of the year, we're talking about hard Brexit again. What I find fascinating about all of this is that to have a comprehensive free trade agreement with a bloc like the European Union... It took Canada seven years. Now, you might make the case that the UK is already there aligned with the EU, so this should be easy to figure out. I don't know about that. Does anything in Brussels happen quickly? Not really. 
can you get this kind of thing done in what, let's be fair, how long should it take? Should it take nine months to get this through the national parliaments in time for the end of the year? When does this need to be wrapped up? By October, at uh, least? Yeah, October, November. I, that, that's the kind of timeline we're working on. And it's going to be incredibly difficult and incredibly challenging. It is important where you start. And as a result, maybe you're, you're, you're kind of lying on the fact that we already have some sort of regulatory environment, uh, regulatory alignment is important. But there also has to be the will on both sides to get a deal done. And I think this is where, again, the majority is important. I think if you are looking from Brussels at the UK and you see Boris Johnson with a sizable majority, here is a credible negotiating partner that I can work with. The biggest problem that Brussels has faced has not been negotiating with the government. It's been trying to figure out what Parliament will do next. So if, if Boris Johnson can turn around and go, right, I've solved that problem, then I think it's going to make it much it's going to reduce the temperature really quite significantly in that and make it a much more sort of technocratic sort of less political process and then we've got to start thinking about what kind of deal that they can negotiate with the european there seems to be a focus at the moment on goods goods and the trade of goods is something the united kingdom has many many deficits trade deficits with many respective eu countries services is where the uk seems to be doing very very well with respective EU countries just in terms of the bilateral trade deficit or trade surplus. It's interesting to me that the focus seems to be on the UK side to get a deal over goods. What happened to services? Why has that not been a bigger part of the conversation in the last 12 months? Because, because I think services, there isn't the, the trade friction and bottlenecks with ports. So it's, 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 it's a much easier process to deal with it's not like you have to invest large quantities of money to build a port uh, to invest to to, to export a kind of legal service you you don't have to have that kind of timeline built in Um, and I think that's why the focus has been largely on on what has been happening with with particularly manufactured goods and and all that kind of export service uh, all export uh, goods so I think the services story is is from that point of view a more immediate kind of reaction uh, to, to to the deal that gets done. You don't need that kind of huge lead time, which is why I think you've had that story. But but I, they're, they're not even... To, to get the Northern Ireland Protocol in place is just incredibly complicated. And, and all, the, all the officials say, even from now, you just couldn't do it uh, in the time allowed. Uh, up next, we're going to bring in another voice to get a take on all of this. Uh, what is the, uh, the situation in the UK? What can we expect tomorrow... What effect is it going to have on the markets? The markets are priced at the moment for a majority from the Conservative Party. Is that what ultimately is going to be delivered? This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio alongside Guy Johnson in London. I'm Jonathan Farrow, counting you down to a British election and looking forward to full coverage beginning tomorrow at 10pm. Look out for that on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg TV. To weigh in on the day ahead, Alistair McKay, Director of Investment Management at Fern Wealth. He joins us on the phone. Great to be with you, Al. Walk me through what you're expecting tomorrow. Uh, evening, Jonathan. Well, I guess, um, you know, FX markets, uh, if we use them as a bit of a barometer, it seems broadly stable uh, at this point in time. I think we're looking for the Conservatives to come out um, with a majority here. I think the key aspect is going to be how big that majority will be. Is it going to give Boris Johnson and his team a big enough buffer 
that when it comes to hard negotiations with the EU over the course of 2020, they go, they're going to feel they've got enough wriggle room to, um, to, to be a bit more heavy-handed in their negotiations or whether they're going to have to um, uh, be a bit more considerate to some of the, the hard-line um, conservatives uh, who are, are, are very set in their ways of leave at, leave at all costs. A lot of the good news has already been priced in, Al. Why mm. shouldn't I sell UK assets even on that result? Why shouldn't I say, you know what, we now need to figure out what the next, next bit's going to look like. We now need to get an understanding of, of how this process is going to work. Why do I want to hold these assets that I've made a decent turn in? Why don't I just exit some of these positions and then wait and see what happens? Um, I think when you talk about these assets, I'm going to assume we're talking about more like equities and okay, the like. No, no, UK assets, FX, UK assets more, more broadly. What, you, you've, had a, you've had a decent run in, mm. in FX. Actually, I think equity has underperformed. Do, mm. you think, do you think there is going to be, particularly when it comes to the currency story, a better to travel than arrive? You've had, you, we will get, if we get a majority for Boris Johnson that is workable, we then need to figure out how he's going to handle a trade story. Why would I? Why would my book some of those profits? My line in the sand, guy, is very much FX or or equities, as it were. FX story-wise, yeah, take your profits off the table because the FX markets are are, are going to be much much swifter to react, more more likely to have a a direct uh, sense to it. Um, And I think, as far as the the sort of upside downside ratios are concerned, you've got a lot more to risk than than gain in the short to medium term. As far as equities are concerned, you hit the nail on the head there. In so much as we haven't seen a lot of that that optimism as much optimism priced in there um, and I don't think the, the downside in percentage terms certainly is as great as it is for, for the pound or sterling so equity wise still happy to sit with those yes maybe we have a bit of a bumpy 6-12 months maybe but um, I, I think um, we're kind of conscious that the negotiations next year are going to be very much structured around what the majority what size that majority may well end up being you might start to laugh about what I'm about to say but I do think the UK has had a lot thrown at it over the last three years and shown that its political institutions are really robust, that this economy has probably been underestimated. And I think we have to go back to June of 2016, looking down the barrel of a referendum and all the gloom and doom stories that we were told about what would happen if the UK voted to leave the EU just have not materialised. And you have another thing on your side as well. There is one thing that basically most MPs in Parliament agree on, and the majority of the countries within the, within the EU agree on as well. Nobody wants a hard Brexit. You've got all of that on your side. Surely the bar is low enough to sit here and say, Al, regardless of what the outcome of the UK election ultimately is, there's going to be an opportunity to get along something in the UK. De- definitely. I mean, that, that's been the conversation we've had continuously for probably a couple of years now, which is, you know, where... <laughs> When is that time to increase exposure to the UK? Because we've got a bit of exposure. When's the time to increase it? And, and when are we going to start seeing, the, the, I suppose, the fear factor plateau out? And to a certain extent, with time ticking along, that we've, we've kind of reached some of that at that, that level now. Even the government's own analysis suggests that the exit from the EU will cost the UK economy. At the moment, mm-hmm. we haven't exited from the EU. Therefore, while you haven't seen um, some of the investments and the opportunity cost is there, at the moment the UK hasn't exited. Next year we're going to have to deal with that, potentially. And I still think that there is a 
lack of understanding as to what that is ultimately going to mean. Now, the longer this has gone on, clearly that means the companies have got more and more ready for it. But I don't actually think we've seen the, the rubber meet the road yet in terms of how this process is going to unfold. And I think, I, I, and as a result of which, I still think there's quite a lot of ambiguity around exactly what 2020 is going to bring for the UK economy. There's going to be a lot of politics happening around the the negotiations in terms of the final trade deal. uh, And there are going to be companies that are going to have to figure out exactly how they are going to deal with this new scenario of having to deal with customs checks and all these sort of things. And that's going to become a much bigger reality during next year, don't you think, Al? And and that's where the drag is going to come from. I think... The, the, the broad public are going to have some sort of sense of relief that we have at least taken a step forwards. Uh, even though that might actually in real, real terms be a quite small step, there will be a, a positivity about the fact that we are actually at least moving forwards with this whole situation. I think what's, what, the way we envisage this is you are going to have to be, as an investor, slightly nimble-footed in the, the years ahead when it comes to the UK because there will be specific sectors, areas, regions that will periodically become more sharply focused in regards to negotiations and the consequences of the changing landscape or working environment they find themselves in, as opposed to whereas we, we look at things now and it is just a broad brushstroke sweep of the whole economy – I think the, 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 the pressure points are going to be much more focused in the months and years ahead as we see specifics become targeted and, and analysed and focused on. Hey, Al, great to catch up with you. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time today to run through some of the markets. Guy, I agree with every single word you said. Don't get me wrong. Just the way I'm thinking about this, if, they, if you get another kind of dislocation like the one you got in late August, early September, they've just proven to be fantastic entry points to get long UK assets. Sterling to move from 120 to 130. Barclays to go up around about 25% off the lows of August to where we are now. If you get those kind of hard Brexit fears on the table again, will they present you with a kind of dislocation and another entry point? Maybe. But, but, but do you know, when you look at what the long-term relationship is going to be, at the end of, this year, end of next year, potentially, you could get to the point where actually you do have a hard Brexit. And, I, and that reality, I think, is something that is very difficult to invest around. Yes, there have been opportunities, but those are tactical, not, not sort of strategic decisions that you're making. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. It's 5.30 in the city of London. This is The Cable. John Farrow here in London for the election, which starts at 7 a.m. tomorrow morning and will finish at 10 p.m. tomorrow evening. We'll then have some great coverage for you of what's going on uh, with this election and the implications for both the British economy uh, and uh, the financial markets. Um, let's get some headlines. Let's start there first. Charlie Peller, over Hi, here. Thank you very much. And here's what's going on, Guy Johnson. Big story in the United States. Less than 90 minutes to go now until we get the Federal Reserve's final policy decision of the year. The Fed is widely expected to avoid signaling a further interest rate reduction is on the immediate horizon. Trade news. Investors continue to remain on edge over whether tariffs will take hold on 
December 15th, getting little clarity from White House advisor Peter Navarro, who said he had no indication that President Trump will, quote, do anything other than have a great deal or put the tariffs on. First day out for Saudi Aramco shares. They surged after the oil producer's IPO, valuing the company at a record $1.88 trillion. The stock jumped the daily 10% limit to 35.20 rials when trading began today in Riyadh as Aramco board members, Saudi officials, and invited guests cheered at a ceremony at the Fairmont Hotel in the kingdom's capital. And Bank of America has joined its biggest rivals in predicting a trading rebound to close 2019. CEO Brian Moynihan said at an investor conference in New York, trading revenue is up 7 to 8% from last year's fourth quarter. Latest from the news desk, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much, sir. Great to catch up with you and great to be back in a country that has fantastic airports. Can I just have a little comment about London Heathrow? It's fantastic. It wasn't. It's until, great. Until kind of four or five years ago. But isn't it so much better? You arrive, yeah. you go through these nice passport checking machines, you scan it, you walk out, you walk downstairs, Pannington Express, 15 minutes, arrive. Circle line into Cannon Street, walk out, you're at work. That's and, brilliant. And, and the Americans can use those gates as well. Not that I'm saying that you're an American, obviously. But no, I mean, obviously. Days, oh, the, if you're an American, you can just go straight through, which is an amazing um, I think it's fantastic. And I know that many, many Americans are very frustrated with the situation with some of the airports. I just can't believe that in a city like New York, we don't have a world-class airport. But New York has, I, America's got some good airports. Just New York doesn't. It just seems to be bizarre. The way that you get, the, the quickest way to get the train over to JFK, you have to go out to Jamaica, Queens, and then you have to get this connection to this air train thing. There's just no... Yeah. Why haven't we got a direct line out of Grand Central all to the way fair, through to, to fair, the airport? Like Paddington is not everybody's cup of tea in terms of being no, able to access under, other areas. I, but, I understand but that. But it's about to get better because the Elizabeth line is going to open soon, and as a result of which... Is cross this Crossrail? Rail, yeah. When that finally... Uh, when is that happening? Up, well, <laughs> who knows? Have they tunnelled this all out now? It's all, yeah, it's, it's, it's all it's, done. It's the wiring is now the issue, and it's, it's taking longer than anticipated. Okay. I know a man that would love to talk about this. He's a train spotter. Is he? No, he's not. Is no. he? <laughs> Cameron Christ joins us now. Usually he's there clearing his throat and jumping in before we get a chance to introduce him. Uh, Cameron, great to catch up with you. Hey, guys. I've, I've got a couple of stories. Go on, please. So in 98, I, did, I took a holiday uh, to Japan, and I was living in London at the time. I took a holiday to Japan, uh, plane coming back home, plane lands, bang, you know, get off bang. the plane. No, not, not with a bang. <laughs> I'm just, you know, that's just uh, whatever. Plane lands, smooth. Uh, <laughs> get off the plane, get to, get to baggage, uh, you know, baggage collection. My bag is there. Pick up the bag. Take the Heathrow Express. You know, grab. You know, go to the, go to the Heathrow Express because this was like a year after it started. Um, train pulls up. Hop on. I'm like the only one on the train. It goes into Paddington. At the time, I lived on Sussex Gardens, which was like literally a three minute walk from Paddington. So I was in my flat 45 minutes after the plane landed. That was fantastic, and you will never, ever, ever get that in New York City. Ever. No. Ever. Why not, though, Cameron? Why can't they do something about that? Because it costs money to build a, um, a rail line from Grand Central to JFK or LaGuardia or wherever. And 
no one wants to spend money on uh, on the rail lines. As I, I can say that I can though. say this I firsthand could... as a rail commuter into Grand Central. It's I get such a barrier to entry, and it makes and it, it's such a sort of big impression. You land, and you end up in a I, the cabs. I have to say, are, are not a great experience either. No. And as a result, you're kind of getting into Manhattan is such a pain. We should I, be creating a hub in Long Island City with a great commuter line coming out of, say, I don't know, LaGuardia. LaGuardia is so accessible to Manhattan. Oh, no, we don't want that sort of you know, We don't want people sort of building up uh, infrastructure or whatever no. in Long Island City. We don't want good jobs. We don't want any of that stuff around here. Take your jobs and, and, and go somewhere else. It's pal. a ridiculous situation. When you started telling your story about Tokyo, I thought you were going to say you forgot your luggage. I can tell you that happened to me once. I landed in Brisbane after a really, really long flight, about three connections and i walked out the airport and a mate of mine picked me up and i literally was just about to get into the car and realized there was nothing in my hands and i'd left my bags on the conveyor belt and totally walked oh, out man. of the airport i've never how hard was it to get your bags back before um actually i was really lucky and i'll tell you why i connected from sydney which meant that when i went sydney brisbane it was domestic oh okay. so so the belt was literally just there, there no available. Customs. No, no customs. You didn't have to go to the other side of customs again. Can you imagine how difficult it would have been to get that backpack? Yeah. It would have been a nightmare. So there's my travel story. Let's get away from investing in infrastructure just for a moment, Cameron. Big election here in the UK tomorrow. It's hard to communicate to an audience outside of Europe what this means for them, because I'm not sure myself what ultimately it does mean for them at this point. What are the stakes tomorrow? Well, I think at this point it's seen as a very high probability that the Tories get a majority, which regardless of what you think that means, the market think that means that we will end up with some sort of resolution uh, on on the Brexit stuff, some sort of clarity. Uh, Now, that might end up being misplaced because, let's not forget, even if they pass Johnson's deal with a new majority – a putative Tory, Tory majority in Parliament. That's just, you know, that's the end of the beginning. It's not the beginning of the end. They then have to negotiate an actual trade deal with uh, the European Union. And given how long it's taken just to get this done, you know, is, is uh, the end of 2020 a reasonable timeline for that? Quite I, possibly not. But this, are people talk, oh, Boris Johnson winning a majority. Boris Johnson winning a majority of five is radically different to Boris Johnson winning a majority of 35. This is true. The, the difference is, is so, so ginormous um, that, it is, that it is really kind of hard to, to, to explain. If Boris Johnson ends up with a majority of five, he is in real trouble. And and this and this process of negotiating, in fact, getting getting a getting Brexit done, I think, is going to be incredibly difficult. And then negotiating a trade deal is going to be incredibly difficult. Well, we're right back to if you know if it's a very if it's a razor thin majority, we're right back to where we started, um, assuming that there are a few remainers amongst those, which seems like a reasonable proposition, does it not? Yeah. So so I people talk about kind of big doors swinging on small hinges. I, the, the the kind of the the spread of differences around the kind of plus or minus thirty is absolutely colossal. Um, Cameron's going to stick around. We probably need to talk about the Fed because that's kind of a big event that's coming up even before the British election. We'll do that next. This is Bloomberg.
This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area, 5.40 in the City of London. We are counting you down to a Fed decision. Um, Last one of the year. Not a lot expected to happen, but nevertheless, I think there's a few areas worth focusing on. Cameron Kreis, still with us in New York. Cameron, I can't see this this decision or this event being anything other than a non-event. Because on Sunday, we are going to get a decision on whether or not we're going to see new tariffs going in the United States in the um, China-US trade war. And if we do get new tariffs going in, that's going to be a huge shock to the US economy, which is likely to have a meaningful impact on what the Fed does next. As a result of which, in advance of that, why on earth should we pay any attention to what the Fed is going to say today? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to the dot plot and the... uh you know, the near-term outlook for policy, as you say, it's kind of a non-event. Um, there is some locus of interest in terms of um, the policy transmission mechanism and what they're going to do about funding markets. I, mean, I think there's a bit of scaremongering out there in some quarters about the, what the year-end turn is going to be like in the liquidity situation. But there is the larger issue that the uh, it's, it's much more difficult to implement monetary policy now than it was before the financial crisis. And that there's a good argument to be made that the Fed should implement uh, a permanent repo facility to um, provide liquidity when there's temporary shortfalls. The ECB has the same thing. Um, so they have been talking about it in over the last few meetings. Is now the time to announce its implementation, or is that a story for next year? Uh, maybe we'll get some more clarity on uh, on on that. So, if you're a sort of a plumbing geek, there's still room for interest. But you know what the dots say for next year. We know there's a split between hawks and doves. Where the marginal dot falls is going to be kind of irrelevant in a few months um, as things as things play out. So. 12 months ago, the Fed was a disaster, staring down the barrel of another rate hike. Most people, I mean, it was a consensus view. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? And if you had to grade Chairman Powell at the time, he'd had a terrible couple of months at the top of the central bank. Here we are with possibly the least anticipated Fed meeting of the year so far. Would we grade him an A for this year, Cameron, given where he was, say, 12 months ago? and the amount of criticism that he received, that we're sitting here today and this is just not the event that it was maybe even three months ago? Um, I don't know if I'd give him an A. Uh, what would you give him? Uh, B. I, 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 it's very difficult for me to give him. He was failing class 12 months ago, Cameron. Well, it's quite yeah, a so, I mean, a gentleman, there's nothing, don't sniff at a gentleman's B. I'm sure, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure the three of us uh, weren't averse to the odd uh, gentleman's B when we were in school, so I'm not going to uh, sniff at it now that I'm a little bit older. Um, I, it's very, very difficult for me to give any central bank a, uh, an A. Uh, so, you know, the fact that they have cut three times, e- even with financial markets going doolally, I think is uh, maybe a little bit overkill. And I think they have been railroaded into – did I say hike? I meant cut, obviously. Um, they have been railroaded a little bit in, into cutting. Uh, you know, this week, uh, Paul Volcker passed away, one of the titans, uh, one of the giants, quite literally, because he was 6'7", uh, of, of the Federal Reserve. And he wrote a piece for Bloomberg Opinion last year, which I think is very – well worth rereading 
or reading if you haven't read it the first time, uh, where he talks about sort of the idiocy or the insanity of trying to pin the tail on the donkey and target this arbitrary 2%, which is a point I think we've talked about in the past, uh, and how that there are negative implications uh, of doing so if in, in, in pursuing this sort of futile target, you end up pumping up an asset bubble that exerts extreme disinflation when it pops. And it can, can be counterproductive if you keep policy too easy to prevent disinflation, you can end up with the very thing you're trying to prevent. We'll talk more about the Fed in just a moment. Cameron's going to stick around. It's also worth remembering as well that the ECB coming up later on the week, Thursday, uh, we are going to see Christine Lagarde's first press conference. Is it going to be up to the the standard of Mario Draghi's press conferences? We'll talk about that next as well. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Farrow in the capital ahead of a general election coming up tomorrow. What a couple of hours, what a couple of days we've got coming up for you. A Federal Reserve decision coming up very shortly in about one hour and 11 minutes time. Then tomorrow, the ECB decision, the first one from ECB President Christine Lagarde still got to come round to saying that very very used to saying ecb president mario draghi i guess we'll all adjust at some point in the coming months so christine lagarde faces down the uh, press after meeting with the governing council that would take place tomorrow then sunday betty talked about today the silence is absolutely deafening we have a trade deadline for the united states and china sources from china according to our reporting here at Bloomberg. They think that this tariff hike will be avoided. As we know, though, not much has changed over the last couple of months. This looks like this negotiation is going to continue if indeed the president wants it to, and that is what it comes down to. Will President Donald Trump put on these tariffs on Sunday and risk derailing the talks? Or will the talks continue and ultimately we go nowhere? Guy, I guess that's the big call. Does the president have the appetite to go through with the tariff hike? This Sunday, is he satisfied with what he's seen since October 11th? Depends what you th- what do you think his objectives are, and I think you, we need to think about these kind of quite broadly. I think there are political objectives here, domestic political objectives that are worth thinking about. There's clearly a re-election story that that, that is going to become increasingly in focus uh, in 2020. You've got the impeachment story that is ongoing as well. This is this is an area in which the president has total control. Total control. He he is the guy calling all the plays. The Chinese are trying to move the narrative around. To a certain degree, they are effective in that, but not very. It is basically down to Donald Trump. I don't understand why he would give that up. This is the one part of a much, much broader story, though, that he has total control over. What I think he has lost control to some degree, to a greater extent, actually, over the last couple of months, is the broader relationship with the Chinese. I wouldn't define the relationship between the United States and China purely over what the president is about to do with tariffs, what may or may not happen this Sunday. What we've seen in the last month, two months alone, has been amazing. We've had the Democrats and Republicans actually agree on something. China, human rights abuses, Hong Kong, protesters, even though... All of this stuff is happening in the background down in Washington, D.C. They've managed to agree on that. We've had the Chinese and the likes of Huawei design a phone that has no U.S. components in whatsoever. We've had Beijing this week tell government 
and government organizations that they have to rid themselves of foreign yep. software and be dependent on Chinese technology only in the coming years. You can't sit here at the end of the year, even if we have a phase one agreement between the Chinese and the United States, even if we have tariff rollback, and tell us that we have a better relationship between the Chinese and the United States than we did a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, even if you have the most comprehensive trade agreement ever. Yeah. No, 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 the game has changed. It's got Absolutely. a whole lot worse. The, the decoupling of supply chains that people were worried about, it's happening. It's not a risk anymore. But, but, it's materialised. And that's, but that is a really important point, that companies are already adapting. And therefore, I wonder, we, we talk about the fact that if we were to see no trade, phase one trade deal being done and, and that these tariffs go on, that actually, if you think about it, the market reaction, why should the market reaction be that brutal? Why should the market, why, why should we get a big downside move in the market? Let's bring Cameron in to get his take on this. Why would I get a big downside move if, if that is the case? The market's already got status quo currently priced in. If you don't get a, a trade deal done, why would I get a, why would I get a downside move? Companies are adapting. The, the system is, is readjusting to this new reality, Cameron. To a degree, but I mean, it's 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 still not the case that I mean, <clears throat> some companies uh, have been shifting some production, but there's still a, an enormous production base in China that hasn't, for the most part, as far as I know, um, shifted permanently. But but most of that's already tariffs already. So so we well th- not that's all of it. That, I mean, bear in mind a, a lot of it. Bear in mind that this last slug of tariffs is on primarily consumer goods. So the tariffs that we've had heretofore haven't necessarily impacted everybody. Okay, well, they, they're, they're the last little bit. Yeah, the October tariffs well, the were a really bit. big hit when we 200, came to two hundred and fifty billion. Okay, but the last, that? but but okay, but the the October tariffs were the really aggressive ones that affected retail in in, in many ways. This is the last kind of bit is is the sort of more high end electronics, um, and there will be an effect off that, sure. But the industry stuff happened all the way back in May. I, this is this is the reality that the U.S. economy has been dealing with for quite some time, and it's doing really quite well. Well, it's doing okay. Okay, uh, like uh, it's doing better than anybody else at the moment. And well, these, that's a, that's a pretty uh, that's a pretty low bar, right? There's a and, lot of people and, employed. There's a lot of people that, that are getting paychecks. And um, yes, yes, but uh, the prognosis for business investment still looks pretty lousy. Um, and is that cycle end or is that trade? Well, I think a bit of both. Um, and if if he puts them on this weekend, it's not like that's necessarily the end. He can always raise the raise the tariff rate, right? Uh, from I mean, he could raise it twenty five percent, thirty percent, fifty percent, and he can do it at the drop of a hat or a drop of a two hundred and forty characters or less. You know, when you're on the train home, uh, some random Tuesday or some random. Some random Thursday. It, it it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't draw a line under the trade no, situation, no. right? Um, and in fairness, a phase one deal is fairly meaningless in the grand scheme of things in terms of um, a That's meaningful awesome. impact on the economy. It's it's all, I mean, there's a lot of bells and whistles, I think, and not a lot of not a lot of substance. But sentiment uh, certainly does play a role in Wall Street and to a somewhat lesser degree Main Street. I mean, if you want to take a step back and take a really cynical view of things, maybe he would look at the stock market and say, well, we're up 25% this year. Why don't I spend 5% in December, yep. put these tariffs on? He okay, hopes that all of this. We, 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 we drop 5% over the next maybe. few weeks. And then in February, 
He says, oh, okay, we're going re- you know, to reach a deal. A truce. A truce. And then, bang, we start the year with a nice rally and a tailwind. I mean... If only we could all tie in the market that well. Cameron Christ, it's great to catch up with you. Great to be with the camera and the Fed decision coming up shortly. A general election tomorrow. The ECB, full coverage of that ECB decision tomorrow on this programme. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio.